How do you go from newspaper man to entrepreneur? Today, my guest is Larry Kramer, who started his career as a cub reporter in 1974 for the San Francisco Examiner. After leading for the Washington Post and several other papers, he eventually returned in 1986 as the executive editor, the head editor of the San Francisco Examiner. And then, about five years after that, in 1991, he left to do his first startup called Sports Tracks. Little did he know that was the beginning of a 15-year journey for him, which eventually, through a series of acquisitions and partnerships, led to his creation of MarketWatch, a financial news website. Under Larry's leadership, MarketWatch IPO'd and sold to Dow Jones for $520 million in 1994. Then, in a bit of a surprise move, rather than continue with MarketWatch at Dow Jones, Larry Kramer went to CBS Digital Media, his former partner with MarketWatch, to be their president. Larry's now returning to his roots, working with startups and media companies to figure out what's next. Enjoy. Larry, welcome to Venture Voice. Well, thanks, Ray. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, I'm really anxious to hear your story as an entrepreneur, but I noticed in your bio you started your career for a big portion of your career you were a journalist. I want to go back and, you know, where did this notion come from to be a journalist? We're going to have to go back a long way. <laughs> uh, it, it was the 60s. Uh, I was a, um, actually, I started in the, in the journalism world as a newspaper boy, literally a carrier boy. And I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey, not far from where we are now. And I went to, um, and I was, as a job in junior high school, I delivered papers. But my junior high school was on split session because it was overcrowded. So I would be done with school at noon and go from 7 to noon straight. And I'd walk over to the newspaper office downtown Hackensack, which was the Bergen Record at the time, an afternoon paper, walk in at noon at 12.30 or 1, 1.30 rather. Paper was printed around 2. And I'd hang out for a half hour and I'd ride the truck home with my papers. Um, so I kind of got the bug of just hanging around a newsroom and loving what was going on. And from that moment on, I knew that's all I wanted to be. Uh, so I was uh, all through junior high and high school. I was editor of my paper. I worked at the at the newspaper covering sports and doing things for high school sports when I was in high school and things like that. Um, I went to Syracuse University, which was uh, the best journalism school around at the time and uh, still is, I hope. Uh, and um, I studied it all through, but even you know, between uh, high school and college, I went with my uh, history teacher uh, that year, 1968, to um, Chicago to cover the Chicago Democratic Convention and uh, for a local weekly. Um, obviously, that was the big one where they had all the demonstrations in Chicago and uh, quite famous. Uh, really just solidified my bug. I got to Syracuse and um, Everything, you know, I think my whole career has been a series of breaks, and, and one of the breaks was uh, uh, I got uh, a call when I was hanging out at the newspaper office, and I was the only guy there at the time, um, from the AP looking for a quick stringer to come to Corn Cornell, which was about 40 minutes away, uh, to cover a breaking story, and some people had taken over the administration building and stuff, the usual things mm -hmm. going on in the 60s. So I got in my Volkswagen and drove down to Cornell um, and uh, hung around all day waiting for these guys to come out of the, this siege that was going on. 
and a, a photographer from the AP joined me there, came in from Albany, and I helped him set up and introduced him to everybody. And he was he had hung around for a long time and figured this is just not going to happen. He was going to leave. So he got up to go, and I said, you know, you just should stick around another 30 minutes. It'll be dark by then, and something may happen before. And sure enough, five minutes later, they all walked out of the building with gun slinging guns and, and bullet sheaths on their chests, bandanas. Uh, he got the picture and uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for the photo because it was a cover of Time and Newsweek. It was a, really was a, it was a, um, at the time, it was one of the largest uh, uh, protests by blacks about campus, about separation on campus. So we, um, so I was solidified in a summer job for the AP for the next summer, and they loved me because I saved their cookies on this one. And I went down to New York that, that summer, 69, after my freshman year of college, and worked my first summer at the AP in the photo desk. All summer I kept bugging them about letting me go cover something because I love working on the desk, but I really wanted to be a photographer or a reporter, be out in the field. And the first assignment they let me go out on was a rock concert that was going on that year um, that I'd been bugging them about and they weren't going to cover. And so I went up to Woodstock early, um, set up, got one of the few hotel rooms on the, ca on the site. And um, sure enough, the story broke and my, I started shooting pictures and had a transmitter with me. I knew how to transmit. And the first two pictures I had transmitted back to AP with my, you know, that were mine, uh, became the centerfold of life because they were the only two out in time for the publication of the big weekly that week. And, and the story, as you know, as everybody knows, broke and became a huge story. So my career was off to a great start. And, and uh, all through school I wrote and edited and uh, reported and shot pictures. Um, I went When I graduated Syracuse, I went, uh, I have a lot more stories I won't bother you with, but I went to, um, I applied to Harvard Business School because I wanted to cover business. Uh, this was during Watergate, and it, doing investigative reporting about money and about business seemed pretty attractive to me then. Um, I think the business school was so taken aback by my application because I hadn't really, I hadn't had a single business course in Syracuse, been a journalism political science major. Um, but they were intrigued, and so they accepted me. And it's probably the only business school I could have gone to because they teach by the case method, which is tailor-made for a journalist. It's one story after another. Instead of books, you get a 20-page case, and you have to deal with it each day, different cases. So I really enjoyed it, and I went there and had a good two years, and I went from there to San Francisco for my first reporting job at the Examiner in 74. Again, I walked landed feet first in the middle of a bunch of big stories. Uh, Patty Hearst, the daughter of our publisher, had been kidnapped. Uh, I wound up covering the Hearst case for a while and doing a bunch of things. Did some investigative reporting and some business reporting. Uh, and a series I did on airline deregulation, I think, got the attention of the Washington Post. About So about three years later, I got hired by the Washington Post to come and be a business writer at the Post, business and, and investigative reporter Post, which was in the 70s, the place to be. It was all about Watergate and what was going on. Um, so I really, the bug was still pretty thick. I went to the Post. Um, I was a reporter for the first three years, really enjoyed it. Um, and then they, I was uh, 30, and they asked me if I would consider doing some editing. And they had a paper they owned in New Jersey, the Trenton Times, and they were having a lot of trouble with it. It was just not working out. And they knew I was from New Jersey. 
as I'd grown up here, and they said, you know, and there was a young staff there, and they figured maybe a young editor could energize them. And uh, so he asked me if I'd go up and try that and be an editor. So I went up to New Jersey for a couple of years. I was editor of the Trenton Times. It had been a trouble paper, and we really turned it around, started making money. Lots of good stories there, too, but uh, I won't bother with those. And then um, it, the fact that it turned around so much made it – the company decided they didn't really want to be in small papers now that they had at least solved the problem. And so they, they sold the paper because they had a bunch of offers now that we had turned it around. And I went back to the Washington Post, and I became Metro editor. Let me just jump in with, with turning that around. What, what, what was kind of your transition from just being a journalist? There were a lot of business story. issues, too. It was when the paper, you know, I, I pushed hard. The paper was an afternoon paper, and I pushed hard for us to start putting out a morning edition because I thought the relevance of afternoon papers was starting to fade, particularly in the suburbs. Um, and uh, immediacy was more important. Inve I felt really strongly about investigative reporting and, and um, breaking news that, wasn't otherwise available, and that proved to be, you know, in a competitive market, there are two papers in that town, that proved to be valuable stuff. It was a good lesson for me because I believe in original content, and that's a theme that's through everything I've done. Um, so I, I think that was the most important thing, plus motivating young writers I found very uh, a very interesting and fun thing to do, and I didn't know how I'd feel about that because I wasn't, I was a writer myself, I wasn't that old, and I hadn't been an editor before. How old were you? Uh, 30. So it was, a, it was a new thing for me. It's certainly running a newspaper at that age, you know, I learned a lot of lessons. Um, almost everybody I was managing was older than me, and there were some, several things to learn about how to do that. And some were easier than others to learn, but I did. Um, so I, and I think, too, that um, I believe in co competition. You know, competitive market helped justify a lot of the things I wanted to do to make the product better. And I, so I worry about monopolies when I see that. But those were some of the early things. And then I went back to the Post, and I was Metro editor for um, – so, and I would have probably stayed at the Post for my whole life. It's, it's like the New York Times. It's a – most of the top editors have been there their whole careers. Um, I was one of the six top editors. I was a system managing editor, and I was in charge of all local news. There's one in charge of foreign, one in national, sports, business, and style. And uh, – it was a really interesting time. The other five people were about all about five years older than me and all had grown up together at the Washington Post and really had never been anywhere else. And I thought that was problematic. I liked them all. They're brilliant people. But I thought the fact that they hadn't really been through a tough com competitive environment would not bode well on the paper in the future, that they needed people who had at least been through the war. Like I felt, I felt like I had come back from Vietnam when I came mm -hmm. back to the post from Trenton. And um, I th and it was a real valuable experience to me about how to motivate my staff and what I needed to do. And I think in a non-competitive environment, post pretty much owned the town at that point. It was tougher. Um, so I, I would have stayed forever probably and, and uh, I would have been happy. It was, you know, paid well. It was a great gig. It was a very powerful newspaper and you felt it. Um, but uh, Will Hurst, William Randolph Hurst III, who I had gotten to know when I was a reporter at the Examiner in my first job, that's his family's paper, he was a reporter too, had left and had, had just come back and then, this was 86, 
to be editor-in-chief of the Examiner. He was going to revive the Examiner. He actually, he'd come back to be publisher, and he was looking for an editor-in-chief, and he called me back up and said, you want to come back to San Francisco and be editor? And um, running a newspaper really was all I'd ever dreamed about doing in a big city, and that was probably the best city in the country to do it in. So I said yes. I went back to San Francisco, rejoined the paper I'd left 10 years earlier, only I, I'd left when I was like a cub reporter, and I came back as editor-in-chief. Uh, again, another management lesson was 90% of the people who were, were still there, and they were in the same jobs. And here I come back, and I'm, the last they remember me is I'm like the, you know, the kid with the, on the late shift to now I'm the editor-in-chief. So it, it was very uh, – it, it took some work in you know, making sure I didn't – I knew how to relate to people, and they knew how to relate to me. And I became probably uber-sensitive about how people – felt about their job. I, I spent a lot of time worrying about personnel and them getting along and the value of having a staff that's motivated and happy versus a staff that's in political infighting all the time is night and day. So it was just a lesson to me to do everything I could. Like was, was there one single thing you did or I just remember I remember early on uh, going back, you know, we all hung out at this bar at the corner, it was the old days, you know, mm. after work. And so I went back down there, st sat on the same stool with the same buddies, right? It was really like I'd never left, to me. And we'd have the same conversations and same jokes, and I'd say, oh, yeah, that story sucked, you know, to some guy, and we'd laugh. I'd go home, and only this time he'd go home worrying that he was going to get fired. <laughs> and I wouldn't have any sense of that because, you know, and it would take somebody coming back saying, you know, you're really scared, so-and-so. I said, what are you talking about? We, we, talk, we always talk like that. He goes, no, you weren't always the editor. And, and so learning – you know, learning to see things through other people's eyes, which is a journalistic trait anyway. You really, when you interview people, you really try desperately to see the world through their eyes. And it makes them comfortable that they're talking to somebody who understands them. But it also, it's, it's important for you to get perspective, to know what the questions are to ask. Um, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But that, so, so really doing the same thing as a manager was important to me. And I'd learned a lot about management from Harvard. But... You know, a huge percentage of being a good manager is common sense. And and motivating people, to me, still ranks right up on top as the difference between, you know, leadership and management is huge. So I came back, and um, I re we, we were very aggressive about the paper. We opened bureaus in Asia. We won a Pulitzer Prize for our coverage in the Philippines. Things were really going well. And then we hit a newspaper recession around 1989 and got slammed. And I had to go through 1990, a bunch of layoffs. And I had to lay off like a quarter of the staff and close all the bureaus. And I got, you know, not, I got depressed, not clinically depressed, but I just was bummed out. I, I spent a whole year not being an editor. And my dream job had like evaporated in front of me. So I didn't, I, I was, I went back and said, you know what, I'm going to negotiate my own severance here. I, I, I can't do this anymore. I was getting into arguments with, you know, the publisher about, expenditures and things, and I'm sure it's not unlike the situation in the industry today, uh, newspaper industry. And his, and they, um, uh, and Hearst was great. The Hearst, it was a Hearst newspaper. Will was great, and the company was great, and they said, look, take a year. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you for a year, take it off. If you want to leave, that's fine. If you want to come back, we'll talk to you. And they were very, you know, supportive, and I needed that because my whole life I'd worked in, at this point, my whole life was I was, you know, 40. I'd worked in a, you know, the cocoon of a big corporation as a top manager, either the Washington Post or Hearst. I'd felt, you know, very protected 
by institutions, uh, and I liked being a manager, and I was fairly risk-averse, I'd have to say, you know, not a entre classic entrepreneur. Um, but I needed this time to kind of reevaluate my life, and, you know, it's kind of rough because I thought I had found everything I wanted, and to have that sort of shatter, it's like, well, now what do I do? You know, what, 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 what will make me happy? A friend of mine worked for a company called Data Broadcasting out there, um, which had a handheld device at the time, and this is like pre-internet, called Quotrek, and it had real-time stock quotes on it. It was the, it was $200 a month, because you had to pay fees to the exchanges and stuff too, but it was the cheapest way for anybody in the market to get real-time stock quotes for whatever so they were looking at. It was broadcast over FM sideband, so it was actually injected an FM radio signal you had to have an FM radio station in every city. You had to take about 5% of their bandwidth and inject this data. And the machine received like a radio, but it was receiving data, not audio. So rather than running a Bloomberg cable, here you could just right. so fly for, to city. So at the, time, uh, at the time, day traders were popping up everywhere. People were starting to trade on their own, not using brokers. And they weren't using – and they, of course, online brokerages were starting. And so there was a lot high demand for real-time quotes. Your only alternative, as you mentioned, would be a Bloomberg terminal or a Reuters terminal or a Telerate terminal, but they were $2,000 a month. And if you're sitting at home trading and it's on your own account, that's, that's too much. So for 200 a month, even though it was like a portable device and not as didn't have the same um, um, versatility as a PC version, it was the best way to get it. And, and there was, there was, they created a PC version where the receiver was an FM receiver that plugged into your PC and you actually could have what looked like a Bloomberg terminal, essentially, in real-time quotes on charts and all that stuff. It was a neat, nifty little company. It was part of a group of companies, though, that was, the group was having trouble. It included FNN, which was Financial News Network. It was the first business news network before CNBC. And CNBC had been started since, but it was competing with them. But FNN was the first guy out there, and they were kind of they were still losing money at the time, and and several other companies were losing money in this little group of companies, except Data Broadcasting, which was a, the California subsidiary that had the data. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the um, his idea was since we had this network that was transmitting data, and we had it on every radio station, we had it twenty four seven, or every a radio station in every town. But we were only using it during market hours. And all we were doing the rest of the time was just repeating the market quotes that closed, that close, that why don't we add sports to it and, and broadcast real-time sports over nights and weekends, which is when sports are big, a perfect complement to business. Um, we could use the same device, maybe put a little different chip in it, and sell it to sports fans as a way to keep track of the, your favorite teams. If, and it was particularly aimed toward what we call displaced fans. So, and I went to school at Syracuse, and here I was living in San Francisco. I could never follow the Syracuse team. There was no internet. Remember, again, it's hard for some people to understand, understand this, right? Believe me, I do. And there were, and you know, the only place you, there were phone services you could call that were expensive to get scores. Otherwise, you had to pretty much wait till the next day because you had no way of finding out what really happened. They, you know, in your area, they weren't broadcasting Syracuse scores. And, and the next day's paper was your best shot at finding out, hard as it is to believe. Um, and so I, I said, it sounded kind of interesting. So he and I teamed up, and the company said to him, look, if you want to do this, data broadcasting, leave the company, start a new business that does that. We'll, we'll invest in it. 
we, we can't invest in the business. We can't start the business because all of our money is going back east to deal with these bankruptcies in the east coast, mm -hmm. these troubled companies. So the profit, we need to make a lot of money and send it back. We can't be starting new businesses. But if you want to do it, we like the business. You know, we'll give you a contract to broadcast over our network, and you know, you just pay us for the hardware and the network, and you know, as you go, and as you go basis, we'll give you offices, and and what we and he, he so we decided to do it. So I said, all right, I'll take a chance. My wife was bugging me too. You know, we lived in this beautiful town called Tiburon. It's in Marin County, and which is a really beautiful place, and a lot of people who live there are like entrepreneurs because it's a pricey place to live, and they could live there. You know, and I was like. I got there. I moved there as the newspaper editor, so I bought a nice house, which was way over my means. But it was in California. I had to, you know, everything's over your means. So uh, she said, you know, all of our friends are entrepreneurs. You should be able to do this. It's no problem, you know. Said, you know, Myla, 95% entrepreneurs fail, and they're living in, you know, walk-ups over in Richmond. You know, the guys, the 5% who make it live here. You know, this isn't like a cakewalk, but there she was in, very supportive, and I had young kids, and I was nervous, but, you know, it was worth trying, and I'm not sure they ever knew how close we were to not having any money at one point, but it, when it, as we went through it. So it was the kind of, like, if this idiot could do it type mentality. Yeah, you know, come on, look at these guys, right? Um, so I went, we started the company, and... Um, uh, I raised like a half a million dollars of friends and family money, something I'll never do again. Um, I mean, t tell me about that. Like how many people did you have to pull probably, together to get a half million? I'd say we pulled together, you know, maybe 30 people, you know, one or two in the 50,000 range, a couple wealthy people who I didn't know and got introduced to, angels. But the rest were family and friends for like 20 Five grand a piece, or you know, fifty grand, or something like that. Now, how do you structure this? I mean, it's kind of it was an LLC things. at the time. It was a very basic partnership between my partner and I, and it was, you know, I, we had to do a doctor. I had to learn how to do financial documents. Some of my Harvard training helped here. Um, you know, we we had the the way we structured the company that we thought had the best shot of succeeding was our idea was to get a. Uh, a sports brand to be our partner. And I went out and I got Sporting News, which was a big sports magazine at the time, owned by Times Mirror. I used all my contacts in the newspaper industry um, to uh, join us and become our marketing partner. So their name was would be put on the product, but they would market it for us in their magazine. So I wanted to reduce fixed costs as much as possible and make as much cost variable as we could so that we only had the cost if we realized you know, we only paid it if we realized we may have to make the product to try and stretch out, you know, not need, not needing cash, not having a lot of cash. So DBC was building the products for us, and we used their network. We had we hired one of their engineers to re-engineer the device so it could take sports information, you know, different screens, different data. We also, one of the advantages to them was we would put the sports data on their devices. So the brokers are also heavy sports bettors and players, and traders are a lot of them. So they liked having, being able to check scores on their device too. So that was something they got out of it. It was an enhancement to their product. Um, and, and they got 40% of our, we gave them 40% of our revenue basically to cover the cost of building the uh, devices, giving us the devices, and use of their network which was a fixed cost to them, so it was great. It was all gravy to them. Um, and then, and then um, we 
got the deal done with um, Sporting News, which is in St. Louis, and they agreed to put their name on the product and market it through the magazine, the Sporting News magazine. Um, I learned, you know, my second really important lesson here. So this had to be, we couldn't do advertising on this thing. It was too small a screen and it was just uh, data, right? So it had to be a subscription product. What data broadcasting had learned was, you know, $200 a month is a lot to charge somebody for any subscription product. So it had to be worth it to that person. It had to be a trader. There were Everybody on earth love, who owned stocks loved knowing their price in real time, especially when they were going up. But they really didn't want to pay for it. It wasn't worth it to them to pay a lot for it because they, they couldn't do enough with it. You know, it was not – they couldn't make money on it. They weren't trading enough. Traders could. So uh, the same turned out to be true in sports. One of the last things I added before we released the product was a live feed of odds from Las Vegas. We'd made a deal with a guy who sets the odds for all the – opening odds for all the casinos, and we'd gotten to know some of the casinos. And that live odds feed, which I thought was just kind of nice information – turned out to be the lifeblood because our device, like the business one, turned out to be of big interest to people who were betting. Um, they had a stake in the game, so knowing what was happening in the game, remember, you couldn't know it any other way. There was no Internet. Knowing what was going on in the game was important. Knowing if the odds moved, because the odds move on games, depending on the betting, was really important to them. If they knew before the guy they bet with that the odds were moving, they could make a bet before he knew. Um, so we wound up with a lot of gamblers as our customers. And not and a lot of people played with it and tried it and loved it, but they weren't going to pay for it unless they were basically gambling. Um, the lesson, that was an important lesson for later, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll remember, file away that point, and I'll tell you why. Um, anyway, we go ahead and do it. We launch. The, the thing does pretty well. I'd say reasonably well. We were on paper making a profit, but we were out of cash. We even our we only had a half a million in cash. So. How did you spend that money? Like, what were the well? It was, really, it was all salaries. There were only there were five of four or five of us. There was my partner and I, an engineer, an office manager, and you know, a marketing person. And then um, I gradually built a news. Started to build a news op sports first a sports news operation because I wanted to put headlines on, not just scores. You know, I, we would shoot out headlines and things like that. Um, so it was maybe six or eight people. Uh, and then we had, you know, some we had to pay something for rent and stuff like that, but it was all favorable because we were sitting inside this company that we were partnered mm -hmm. with. Uh, and you know, we were living off it. It wasn't it wasn't big salaries, but it was enough to live off of. It was much less than I made as editor of the paper, which was you know a squeeze on all of us. Uh, anyway, we were as we were desperately running out of cash. Um, data broadcasting figured out this could be a good product if they owned it. So they came to us and exercised an option to buy it as the largest shareholder. And we said, we didn't have to sell it to them, but we were going to because we needed the money. And they gave us some, they, what they did was they took all, the deal I wanted was I wanted to protect my investors. So the investors, instead of getting paid out in cash, got warrants for data broadcasting stock. They were publicly mm -hmm. traded which uh, comes there's another full circle there too but anyway they got stock they got a, a chance to make a lot more money in the future if that company did well which we were now a part of um, so they didn't lose anything and I didn't take a lot for myself I just basically you know I rather my investors got paid off and I got a nice employment contract basically a little bit of money not very much um, how much was it bought for and I mean the total, total consideration was like a million dollars but it was 
and a lot stock? Or? Yeah, and, well, the uh, we got it all in stock, basically. They paid off our debts, which was half a million, I think, and then the other half, it was like a half a million dollars worth of stock and warrants. It's not a lot, real money at the time, but it was 1990. It wasn't terrible, but... And it was, you know, we the company technically was bought for a million, so it was, you know, it, there were little headlines in our local papers saying that that data broadcasting bought this company for seven figures. So it looked great, mm. but it was the reality was it was just pressing the bet, and and I was going into the future. And they said to me, look, I want we want you to stay and run it. And my partner, in fact, who had been at that company before, went back, and he ultimately became president of the overall company. Mm. But my job was to run this and to help them figure out what they were going to do about stocks. This was now 1993. 92, 93, and they were starting to hear about the Internet, and they were worried that their monopoly on real-time quotes for the average guy, which was a good business now because more and more people were day trading, would be in jeopardy. And they wanted our advice on what we could, how to handle that. And I said it was very simple. If you just sold stock quotes, it was, uh, there was no product differentiation. It was going to be about price. If somebody could deliver them cheaper, that w they were going to win because all people wanted was the stock quote. So my advice was build a news operation to go with it. So if somebody's going to leave you to go somewhere else, they're going to lose something you're giving them that's unique. And it was sort of a mini Bloomberg idea at the time. And, we, and they liked the idea, so they let me start to build a business newsroom. And I actually, you know, I started to hire people who knew both sports and business so they could be versatile. <laughs> I mean, my first two people really uh, had to do headlines of both, and, you know, it was, it was interesting. So I was building a news operation. I was real comfortable doing that. I knew had news. I loved news. I loved both sports and business news. Um, and products started to do okay. Um, we bought a business. We bought the an odds business in L.A. that helped bolster it up even more. Things were going pretty well. Um, and then the internet did start to come along, and we started putting some things. And we decided we'd play with the internet, even though the company was very nervous about it. We kind of had a Skunk Works project where we built a, a news pages and we owned at that time data broadcasting owned a, a ticker plant what's called the ticker plant which means they took in all of the feeds from all of the uh, exchanges around the world stock exchanges and created one single feed that's how they fueled the thing there are only about a dozen half a dozen of those in the world Dow Jones Thompson Edwin Reuters and and so that was a valued thing that we had and I said you know we should go to newspapers who are building websites and say look We'll do your financial pages on the web because we can give you a real-time financial page. People can keep their portfolio on your page. Your customers can call up their stocks on your site and get, you know, the quote at 15 minutes delayed. That's this exchange rules. And, uh, and I bet you the newspapers will want to do it because they're starting these websites. They don't really know what to put on them. This is one of those things that changes throughout the day, and the fact that they'd have to do no work would be valuable to them. Maybe we can get them to pay us a little. Maybe we can just sell ads on it. Who knew? We had no clue. So we did. We launched what we call brand label quotes, and USA Today was our first customer. And USA Today had just launched their online product, and I think theirs was a pay online product. And we said, "We'll we'll do your pages." And we we call we built pages that looked exactly like theirs, but they were on our servers. So you actually, from it would, you'd, you'd click money on USA Today's front page. It would actually take you to our page. But nobody was reading URLs then. They didn't know what a URL was. Um, but the page just looked like you were still on there, and all the links from the page brought you back to USA Today. So they didn't feel, 
you know, a problem with it, but we could we had a deal where we could sell some ads on it and I don't remember how, exactly how much money Pat changed chance it wasn't a lot but it was it was a, a it was a business that looked like a good business for us and a, and a way to bolster revenue um, but it also taught us that people were starting to use the web and 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 it was it was really kind of interesting and we so we built up our news operation and built up our site I hired a few more people we started to do full stories we could only do headlines on the radio broadcast but on the web we could do a lot and we what we did was we gave all of our broadcast customers a password to get onto the website and so we were still doing all everything we were doing for the paid customer and I said you know why why do we have to do that why don't we just open that up to everybody and and put advertising on that seemed like an interesting idea and we started to do that and actually started to get some traction now it was 95 96 and we um we were told we got an award from uh, Barrons, which ranked financial websites and like put us number one. It was just called DBC Online then. Things were really starting to pick up. There were like twenty people in my little division, and um, and I went back to them and said, "Look, I think there's a huge business here. I think we could start it. Um, my recommendation is you let me spin out these people I have into a new business. I'll get a media partner." And all I need for that media partner is like the brand and their their name and and you know, credibility, so we can sell a lot of advertising against it. And they all will come. Well, I don't know. You know, that's kind of a risky thing. And I said, Netscape had just happened, just went IPO'd. It was mm. huge, and the and everybody was marveling over the value the public was willing to pay place on these new internet companies because they didn't. You know, there was no, the businesses weren't that big yet, but people really believed it was the future. I said, if we do it, we're going to get this new company valued as an internet company, and it's going to have like a huge valuation. Stock will be worth a lot. Your stock in it will become worth a lot, and it'll raise the value of this company. And, and I don't have to go out and raise private money if I can do this. If you guys will give me the initial capital. And it wasn't a lot of money. It was, it was a couple million dollars, but it was the business that we had built. So I went to CBS, um, who had, at that point, um, had just made an investment and just started with Sportsline. Um, they had invested in this private company called CBS Sportsline, and they'd given their name for the first time to a sports company, to anybody else, even in a relationship. And I went right to them and said, look, and I knew the guys at Sportsline. They were buying data from us. Mm-hmm. I said, could you make an intro? So they made an intro, and I met, met with CBS, and I said, look, I really think this would be great. I want, why don't you create a business site, too? We'll call it CBS. We'll roll it into a new business. We'll call it CBS Market Watch. It'll be up and running the day we make the deal. We're already like a major player in this little world. But with your name, we could become a major player. I can sell a lot of advertising. Uh, it's a, we're a credible news organization. I ran the, you know, the Examiner. I worked at the Washington Post. I knew some of the people at CBS News. I thought they would be welcoming of us. And CNBC was kicking their ass in the financial story because NBC was because they had CNBC. All CBS had was one guy named Ray Brady who was covering financial news. And here NBC was blasting along because of CNBC a lot of great stories. Um, and irony of ironies is that FNN was sold to CNBC in 91. So they actually, whatever the original roots of the company went to CNBC. Um, and, uh, and we talked to CNBC too about, you know, we could be your website. 
they approached it like, yeah, you could, you know, and we'll, maybe we'll do the deal and we'll run everything. And, we said, and I said, you guys don't know anything about the Internet. You can't run this. The CBS guys knew what they didn't know and said, you know, this could work and we could really – we could use the help on the business coverage front. I, and I said – and I was like – I said, I'll be your best friend. I will hire people who will go on the air for you. You can approve the hires. But they'll be your business correspondents, but they'll be part of our company. And we'll use them for other things. Like maybe we'll do a business TV show. You can help us. We could syndicate a business TV show. We could do a radio network. We could do lots of things that work for CBS, too, once we have this new, a news organization built up. Um, and they liked the idea. So we made a deal in October of 97, rolled out the company. The stock of DBC was at four in, in September, I think, of 97. We made this deal and announced... Uh, in oct October that we're doing this joint venture and that CBS we were con DBC was contributing the company and CBS was contributing 50 million dollars worth of marketing and advertising considerations mm -hmm. no cash but for that they got 45 percent of the company DBC got 45 percent and I carved out 10 percent for the employees and me and the rest of the employees there mm -hmm. um, and so I never had to go through you know, traditional VC funding or anything. But it was an example, a rare one but an important one, that you could incubate a new business in an old, in an old line business. That you could get some ways down the road. I knew, though, that we could never get a lot bigger if we stayed there. I knew that mm -hmm. the crush of running a bit traditional business wouldn't allow for the kind of entrepreneurism you need to run a separate business. So I convinced them that, you know, us being a part of something else was better. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, too, in addition to the, the kind of failure rate of incubated businesses, it seems like there's even a higher failure rate with these joint ventures between media companies. Right. I mean, Hulu's probably the only other one I can think of that seems yeah, to be Yeah, which I think is ultimately doomed, but, but mm -hmm. that's another story. I mean, I, I, but, but it's those forces, right, where, you, you know, the, it's the media very hard. company you have, have to the deal arrogance the or the – You have to deal with the fact that your owners have – invariably will have different goals. No, and, and you have to somehow make that work. Um, so in this case, it was really tricky because you knew that CBS loved being in the Internet business for no cash – that, that they were well, – a lot of what they were giving us, they couldn't have made money on anyway. You know, we were – instead of getting a lot of ad inventory, we would get our name up behind Dan Rather every day on the news where he'd say, mm -hmm. today's CBS Market Watch report. And so he was promoting us. They were charging us for that as if it was an ad, but it wasn't coming out of their ad budget, uh -huh. right? It was like um, – but charging us on paper, you know. They were against the $50 million, right, that we had. Um, and we did actually pay them a licensing fee, a piece of our revenue for use of the CBS name on our business. Uh, and I had to give do take I had to take some things on faith. I had to give CBS News the right to tell us that we could that, that anything could come had to come off the site if if they didn't like what they saw, they had to have the overriding ability to take it off and and not have it be under the CBS name. And I had a good enough relationship with the CBS, head of CBS News, Andrew Hayward, who I put on my board, that I really, you know, I, I trusted them. They not once in ten years did they ask us to take anything off, but they had the right to. For they had to review every use of the CBS I, and you know, sometimes we'd do things and we'd forget to ask them. Sometimes we'd hear from them. Sometimes you know they didn't care. But it was you had to. There had to be a certain degree of trust. 
And but I had to do something interesting because DBC was my other partner, and at the and at early on, about a year after this deal happened, Pearson, the owners of the Financial Times, bought Data Broadcasting, and they bought it partly because they wanted half of Market Watch, and it was so. Now we had a new partner, and and they were both big media companies. In the earlier thing, CBS wasn't very wary of DBC. It was a much smaller company. And while DBC may want to be the ultimate seller of, the co of our company, CBS was a likely buyer. Now we had two media companies, either of whom could buy it. And that was tricky. And, and I had to make sure that we did two things at the same time, which were very tricky. One was operate the business so it could be um, uh, a success um, under under the use the CBS name to be a success, so we we play off the CBS name, which helped our advertising make maximum use of the CBS brand. Same time, it had to be, it had to be a business that didn't have to be it had to be a business that could be bought by somebody other than CBS. Mm. I couldn't be so deeply into the CBS world that that's the only buyer, because then we had no leverage, and the other shareholders would go, wait, you know, that's not right. So I had to keep building the business in a way that if it had to be detached, it could. And the irony is, I mean, ultimately it was. CBS lost the bidding to buy it. CBS didn't really have an inclination to buy it for years because it was doing well for them. They were getting fees from us. Um, and, you know, why should they spend the money to buy it? They had the reputation. They, had, they were, looked like an Internet company. Wall Street liked it. But they didn't have to pour any money into it. They didn't have a, it wasn't a bottomless pit. We were breaking even or making money. We never really burned a lot of cash because we always had some revenue coming in. Um, and they, so we weren't a drain on them at all. And it was a nice deal, sweet deal. And I kept saying, you guys ought to buy this thing. It's going to be big, you know, trust me. Um, and they said, maybe someday, but we're not in a hurry. Uh, then, um, so when things started to really take off, we started to grow. There was the bubble. I mean, 2000, a year, within that first year of being, well, we were a company in 97. January of 99, we took the company public. A very tiny company, we took it. We had $7 million in revenue. We had a million in profit, probably. And we, um, and we had 35, I think, employees, something like that. The, again, DBC stopped. Like smaller than Twitter, you, yeah. you know, headcount-wise. Right. And we were only going to raise 20. Doing an IPO, because people were so interested in Internet stocks then, was the cheapest way to get money. It was cheaper than going to a bank or anybody else because we didn't have to give away that much to the company. People would buy shares at a reasonable price, at a high price for, for the size of the company. So we valued the company, I think, at $200 million, and we sold 20%, uh, roughly 20%. Of the company, it was like right. seventeen. What was it like coming up with that number? I mean, because we, well, we, we hired well, it could bankers. Be 100, it could be we hired bankers, and they did uh, huge calculations of what internet company, the few internet companies that were public, like Yahoo and stuff, what they were valued at, and what the multiples were of their revenues of their, and the, and they were doing crazy things like projecting next year's revenue, taking a multiple of that, and saying that's what it's probably worth. I mean, this becomes very important because. Um, you know, we were the, these valuations were, you know, hefty. So we were um, we wanted to sell roughly uh, two point. We had ten million shares in the company. We were going to sell two point seven million of those shares to the public. 
and and, and we were going to sell them at ten dollars a share. We, if you were two hundred, that would make you a ten dollars a share would mean a, a, at um, at ten million shares would be like a hundred million dollar company, and we were going to sell twenty seven percent for whatever, uh, you know, for for um, we were going to raise twenty seven million of it at that valuation. Um, the I went on the road show to sell the stock in January of ninety nine and it was like a stones tour. Everybody on earth wanted the stock. And I knew that the general public would want it because they were using the site. At that point we'd grown to be the biggest site. A year after we were mark became CBS Market Watch, we'd grown quite substantially. And we were the probably the biggest financial news website or close to it. Not as big as Yahoo Finance, but big independent. And Yahoo Finance was using our news. It was a big, heavy time for us. And we, uh, the institutions all wanted to get into an Internet stock, and they loved this. Our, they loved our story. So the first week, I visited 70 different funds. And it was going to be a three-week roadshow. And all 70 went back to the banks who had brought us and said, we want the maximum number of shares you'll give us. We actually had institutional orders at that point for 80 million shares. We're only selling 2.7 million shares, right? So I go on the second one, and so we raise the price. Instead of $10 a share, now we're going to go to 12 to $14 a share. Big increase, 20 to 40%. Nobody flinches. Nobody, wants, nobody lets go of their sits. We go into the second week, same thing happens. Now at the end, we have like 160 accounts, whatever we had visited. Then now we have orders for 150 million shares, and they want me to go to the third week in Europe for further fundraising. I said, are you out of your mind? Why would I do that? We don't need it. Let's 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 close this thing up tonight. And we were in San Francisco at the DLJ Journal DLJ Internet Conference, which was the height of insanity in January of '99. I said, "We'll do our presentation here, and let's price it and go public the next day." So we do it. It's like standing ovation. Everybody wants the stock. We um, have the pricing meeting, which is very important. At which point they say, "Well, what do you think we should price it at?" And I, and I said, "We have all these orders. Why don't we like price it at 30 We'll raise, you know, thirty million, and uh, we'll raise whatever it was. It was sixty million instead of, you know, the twenty-five million we were going to raise." And they said, "No, you can't do that because you have to really value. You have to show that a company is worth a certain value. You have to use the, the metrics you were talking about. Some mm -hmm. of those things." to determine what the value is and because otherwise when this thing if it, no matter what it sells for today if it sinks down to nothing you'll get sued by people saying you inflated the value of it so we all came up we came up with some numbers that basically the bankers said they were comfortable supporting anything up to $17 a share based on project, very optimistic projections over the next year or two so we went out at $17 a share it means we were raising now $34 million or, or 40, almost $40 million, I guess um, and they, uh, but it was you know seventy percent higher valuation than two weeks earlier, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of ballsy. Uh, nobody backed off. Everybody wanted all the shares still, uh, and I knew that the people who wanted this more than anything were the people on the internet who who were going to buy not the institutions but just our people because they were using the site. They knew mm -hmm. it. And they'd love to own a piece of it, right? So I thought this was going to be insane when we opened. Uh, meanwhile, data broadcasting stock, which had been four to six, in the in the week leading up to the IPO, jumped to forty, yeah. because that's what was happening to stocks. They they people were were seeing who the owners were of these internet companies, and if they were a publicly traded stock, they knew that stock was going to go, and they could buy it hmm. on the way up and sell it 
when it hit like some ridiculous numbers. But and meanwhile, just to tie the storyline together, you're, that's a stock that your friends and family still own from the original Thank investment. You. That's right. That's the stock they had gotten. And it was a five-year warrant, and it was just about to run out, but it hadn't run out yet. If you still hold your warrants, and I all did, they, that whatever DB, – suddenly DBC stock, it, it represented a tripling or quadrupling of their original investment in data sport if they sold at that point. Um, and they did. Most of them did, thank God. Uh, so I became – I could talk to my relatives again, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner got a lot yeah, nicer. Yeah, got a lot easier. Yeah, you got that right. Um, they were mostly great about it. I just felt more guilty than anything else, you know. And I told they all knew going in that this, you know, don't count on this money. If you need the money, don't put it in this. It's risky. Anyway, they did it, and the um, the stock soared. Our stock, they couldn't open trading in our stock the next morning because the order imbalance was too heavy. The buy demand was too high. They, they finally opened trading at 3.30 New York time in the afternoon. First trade was at 67, and it hit 130. In the, and in the half hour left in the market, 12 million shares traded. It went to 130 and settled at 97, which meant when the day ended, our stock, our company's market cap was a billion dollars. We had 7 million in sales, a million in profit. The market cap was a billion because it was like $100 a share. And the 12 million volume meant that every share had been traded five times in the half hour. All of the institutions that were in at $17 were out because they had to be. They were small cap funds. And if a company becomes a, a medium cap or large cap and billion dollars set us over limit, it triggers them selling automatically because they're – as a fund, their promise to their subscribers is to, is that we're only going to invest in small caps. So they all made a fortune. They all made eight times their money, you know, and in one day. Every now, you know what they wanted so badly. Mm. The public, which bought it, wound up buying it only in that last half hour, and they paid high prices for it. So you didn't, you know, you didn't unless you bought the one of the first few shares. You didn't get it at seventeen a share. You got it at, you know, whatever it was. It was, it was brutal. And, you know, they um, – and some people in the public, you know, bought and sold that same day too and made money. Maybe not ten to eight times their money but made money. But it was a lesson I learned about, you know, supply and demand and, and Wall Street and, what was, and, and the insanity of what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. So I called my staff together. Third, there were 35 of us, I think. On paper now, twenty almost 20 were millionaires, right, based on the stock we had. Remember, we had 10% of the company, right, which was, so means $100 million worth of net worth mm -hmm. in our 40 people or whatever, in, in 35 people. And I was worth $20 million on paper that day. And, they, and the Wall Street Journal did a piece the next day basically fo focusing on me, saying here's a reporter, ink-stained wretch, who's now worth $20 million because of the Internet. How nuts is this? I called everybody together and said, this is insane. It can't last. Do not. If I hear that any of you borrowed money against these options and bought stuff, I'll fire you. Because you're stupid. Not for any other reason. But the you're, you can't believe that that's, this is frothy and this just can't last. Um, and, you know, we couldn't sell for six months. Insiders, you know, you had the stock, but you couldn't sell for six months. As it happened, the stock stayed pretty high for a year. I mean, it stayed in the – six months later, it was in the 80s still. 
And so some people did sell some and got things out of it. I sold very little. I was, you know, I was CEO. Of this. You publicly report all the CEOs' trades, so you didn't really want to do that. So, so I went and did. Um, you know, I went and had this speech, and everybody kind of thank God, everybody listened. Nobody, um, uh, nobody, nobody did what happened to a lot of other people in the. Um, in the in the uh, internet space those days, which is, uh, they they borrowed against these options, bought houses, Mercedes, and all that stuff, and suddenly, the value went to nothing. And you know, and a year later, in two thousand, everything crashed, and they had to sell things at you know horrible situations. So none of our employees had that problem. So now it's a year later. Let me just pause for one second. What was life like for you over those past six months? I mean. Six you know, people we, must have been calling you who you hadn't heard from. And like, what is oh, yeah, yeah. It was every, like it, uh, all kinds of, you know, come ons for people who needed money or to friends who just were renewing friendships. Um, there's a lot of that. There was a lot of, um, you know, but I was really busy running the company. I decided that this was frothy moment, but it also was a currency the company had. So I went out and bought a big a company and bought big charts, which was this great tiny company in Minnesota that had a that did all the was I needed to get my own uh, I wanted to get out from under data broadcasting you know data broadcasting we were still paying them on a service basis to be our infrastructure and I knew if we were going to be a web company we couldn't be on this radio company's mm -hmm. infrastructure so I found big charts which had an infrastructure that that is exactly what we needed. They had a website. They had, they also had charting and these other products. I remember using it back in the nineties. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And they were, it's still around. It's still doing well. But it's ours. I mean, it was part of Market Watch. But we bought it, and I said, okay, this will be interesting because we'll have a second revenue stream. People license these charts, like Dow Jones and stuff, to put them on their sites. Plus, these guys are my could be my entire. I'll move the whole company's, you know, technology group to Minnesota where they are, and and they'll host the site, and we'll be real internet company, not. A, a pretend internet company in an old mm -hmm. company, huge thing to do. It was they were a, a tiny company? We bought them for 160 million all paper, so basically we bought them for 20 percent of our company, which was I thought was fair because that that you know they were represented about 20 percent of the revenue. They you know we had seven million, they had a million or two, I forgot, but but they could be everything for us, and and it got us out from under data broadcasting. And it was of the 160 million, you know, five was cash, 155 was our stock, mm. and so if they want to take the chance of crashing with our stock, great, you know, they were with us. So when the stock did crash, you know, a year later, a little over a year later, all internet stocks crashed. Our company, as a public company, was doing fine. We hit every quarter, and as advertising that year dropped from 33 million, it's high in 2000. To uh, uh, in 1999, to 15 or 16 million in like in weeks, a matter of weeks. Um, this licensing business uh, we had built from like 10 million in the first year to 25 million, and so the almost the exact number that went down, this went up. So we were looked like a flat company when everybody else was hemorrhaging and and was dropping like crazy. We just looked like we weren't growing, but we were in the right areas and and. Uh, we knew that the advertising thing would eventually come back, but we now had enough revenue coming in mm -hmm. on the business side to save us. So the, the deal to do um, uh, big charts looked genius at that point. And, and, and that was another big lesson uh, that I had, which was 
you know, as many revenue streams as you can create. And, you, and let me pull back that thread from before. You were saying your lesson about ad revenue. Yeah, I the, guess uh, different forms of revenue. Yeah. The, so what I learned about first, what I learned about subscriptions was that I already knew that in the financial world, and one of the reasons I wanted to go with a financial site first on the web was financial news was valuable, and there there were people paid a lot of money for financial news. So they were paying two grand for a Bloomberg terminal and actionable financial news where you hear something in real time that you can trade on. And if you get it in your trade in first, you make money doing it. That people would pay for that. There were people who could act fast enough if you could give it to them free. And our philosophy was, you know, nobody was getting it for free yet. But that if we could, but if people were trading at home, if we could bring it to them for free or a lower cost, it meant a lot to them. And that our biggest competitors, Dow Jones, uh, uh, Bloomberg, and Reuters, all charged a lot of money for their news. They would have a hard time giving it away cheaper because the customers who were paying them a lot would complain. So that we had this opening for the world between free and wherever they were. And that even free might, if enough people were going to be trading, that we could do it for free because the advertisers would want to be enough advertisers to reach that group of people. Uh, also, I learned that, you know, in the course of a subscription, that the only people who would pay for it are people who, ha who could make that money back. So there was an audience of people who would pay anything almost for financial, real actual financial data. The next person would pay nothing but wants it. And there's, and there's a lot of those people. Same was true in sports. Mm. The guys who were betting, you know, would do would, – would pay anything if they knew they could – it would give them an advantage. The next guy, it was a drop down. It really wouldn't pay anything. If he really needed scores, he'd go to, U, he'd go to um, uh, uh, ESPN. That'd be enough. But he didn't really – you know, they didn't see it as – enough reason to spend $50 a month, which is what we were charging for sport tracks. So I said, okay, my goal then was I needed to get a business big enough to do it on advertising, get enough people that advertisers would support it and, and that there would be – it would be a really valuable service and it would be there. And that there might be pay things we would do on top of that, but that advertising was really important. Second thing I learned was advertising is fickle and it goes with the economy. And having other revenue streams, if you could do them, was really important. So licensing in this case, our philosophy was, you know, we would – we make money with ads on our site for news. So you want people coming to – as many people come to the site as possible and we'll sell ads. But if somebody has a reason, and it's a good one, to want our news on their site and they're willing to pay us, you know, so we're going to still make the same amount of money as, as if those people were watching on our site, nothing wrong with doing that. So Schwab, for instance, which – was a big advertiser on our site and which got a lot of people from our site also knew that the uh, all brokers knew that the only value to them of having a customer was if they were trading they only get paid by the trade so it, you can have a you can open up an account with them if you don't trade they don't make any money on you and so they want you trading and we're a call to action to trade people on our site see news and think they know something and want to trade um, the problem was you also were seeing all of their competitors' ads on our site. So they said, look, we'll pay you to put our news, your news on our site. We'd like to keep our subscribers on our site and let, let them get – and still getting the news and doing everything there and then trading. And uh, we said, all right, well, we'll figure out what we're going to lose if we take your audience and based on the size of your audience, and we'll make you a deal. And we'd come back and say, okay, 
it, we might drop, you know, $50,000 in advertising if we have that many fewer, if their customers stayed on their site. And by the way, we didn't think all of them would because what, what they didn't understand and we did was we were selling two things. We were selling our content, but we were selling our take on the content. So our front page, the editorial intelligence involved in our front page saying this is important and this isn't was really important. And we weren't selling that to anybody. So people, if they really wanted to see what was going on, they had to come to our front page. If they were caring, if they were caring about you know automobile stocks or this stock or that stuff, they get that information. Our information on that they can get on on uh, uh, on their own site if that site would pay us for it. So we felt okay. Worst case, we'd lose fifty thousand advertising. So we charge them a hundred, and you know we'd go way over and say, look, you're gonna have to pay us this for that. And and in almost every case, it didn't seemed to cost us anywhere near as much as we thought it would, and we made a lot of money on it. Um, so we built that second revenue stream, which during the advertising um, uh, drop-off saved us. And, and then a bunch of companies that were competitors went out of business because they couldn't live on advertising alone. They, they had no other revenues, and advertising dropped so much that when we knew that we'd be in a great position. When advertising came back, there were fewer places for them to go, and we were ready. What was the competition like with the street.com? Which it, it seems like such a huge coincidence that Jim, yeah, Jim that, and I were that there'd be another friends. Kramer. I know. We, we became they close spelled friends. They differently. Yeah, spelled differently. We did a lot of Kramer v. Kramer And, and a similar background, too, right? Yes. Yeah. We actually had met before, too. Uh, he worked for a newspaper business. He worked for the Hearst Paper in L.A. when I was for the Hearst Paper in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, Jim, they panicked in 2000 and they were doing they spent a lot of money to build the street.com brand up they believed in charging from the beginning and they panicked about all advertising in 2000 when it went away and they went they made their bet on just charging and 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 making it making the free site much less valuable but pushing people to subscribe because they felt advertising couldn't support the business it was a big mistake because when advertising came back we grew much bigger than they did mm -hmm. they were they were doing what we did without CBS. So they had to, it cost them probably $200 million over several years they had to spend to build the street.com brand up into a great brand. They did it. And Jim himself was worth hundreds of millions of that, you know, because he's, he's so much of that brand. Um, and then, but, but they lost huge, valuable years. And, and, and they really may have lost their chance ever to be a media company by, pulling back and be staying in the B2B thing. We made the decision. I had a lot of pressure on me from my board and from everybody to, to start charging. I said, stop this advertising thing. You can't make it. And thank God I had the licensing business, which kept me able to say no to that and keep the, the free business going because that the free business is what took off and what valued the company. So it's having the non-ad business that allowed you to keep an ad business. Right. Because it's seasonality of, of, of advertising. All mm. businesses have some... You know, have have periods of being up and down. Multiple revenue streams gives you more of a chance to be less impacted by the seasonality or the, uh, you know, or any of the economic issues that can come along. And now, when you say that the street dot com lost their chance to kind of be a media company, what what do you mean? What is a media company? I media company may be the wrong word here, but but they lost their chance to have a mass media business because they. They didn't support the free business very well, and they lost viewers there. And and the realization has to be that, you know what, those aren't necessarily people who will pay you. I mean, the fact that 
you know, you charge, you should charge for that information, just like the people, you know, it limits you to the people who, for whom that's worth money. And that may be the right thing to do. Um, you know, certainly Reuters and those guys lived that way for a long time. Uh, but in the end, if you, in, especially in today's world where information is moving so much faster and so much more freely available, being able to make money in the in an ad supported environment is probably a bigger play than it than it used to be. And while Bloomberg is a fine business right now and makes a fortune, they're a rarity. I mean, it's not even they are trying to figure out how to be more how to make money on the web and other places. The the assumption they made was people want this information, they'll pay for it. And that's true only for a small subcategory of people. And they will. But you're, you're going to lose the mass market who really don't can't pay for it and don't have, aren't going to make enough on it to do but want it. And if they want enough and you can give it to them for free and there are enough of them, that's a big business. It's a, it's a much bigger business in the long run, I think. It's much more general and just much more general audience business, but it's a bigger one. So they they sacrificed that to concentrate on the paid guys. They went in the direction of Dow Jones and the old media guys, and we said it's a new world and we have to honor we have to keep this free thing going. I have no re, no issue with selling content on the web, and I and I understand why the Wall Street Journal did what it did, and they may have made exactly the right decision in the long run to have a paid paid product, and they're doing better than almost anybody at at straddling the line. They've now grown the audience, the free audience of the Wall Street Journal much bigger and they still haven't apparently yet jeopardized the pay thing. They understand the difference. So it might be how many articles a month or whatever. But you need to be in the free universe to be searched, to be all the things that w that cause you to grow and gain stature in the world today, which are different than it was five or ten years ago. What you did to build your brand or get people to come to your website or your newspaper or your magazine five years ago is very different than what people do now when with search being so dominant. And so, you know, our belief was if we get all the free people you can, build whatever additional products to deal with people who are willing to pay you money for them if you can get them. Try and get both. But you may not be perfect at getting both. And ours, doing it in bulk was the right way for MarketWatch. We, get, we sold it not to you, the individual, but we sold it to the brokerage. That's sort of like cable TV. I mean, you don't realize it. You're paying, if you have a cable, you're paying Fox. You're paying uh, for Fox News, for MSNBC.com, or MSNBC Television. You're paying for that stuff out of your fees. They're paying each of those guys a certain number of pennies a month for every subscriber. You're writing that check to, to Time Warner, but Time Warner's taking half of that money, and, and it's going right to these other guys. You don't, you're not even part of that transaction. So if you can build situations like that, which is effectively what we did, with, mm. with you know Schwab or or TD Waterhouse or all the big brokers and the and the people who bought our content for their site, no problems. Yeah. So the way you're talking about the media company means you have a big audience, but not that you rely exclusively right. on ad revenue. That's right. You 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 can still have a pay part of the audience too, but you can't. You just can't. Um, uh, being a purist isn't necessarily the right way to go. The industries are changing. The world's changing. Trying to be in multiple worlds is the right thing to do. So you learn pretty much what which way to go, you, you, which way things are going at any given time, and you move the the, the business to adapt. Mm. Right. Great. So let me get back to the market watch story. So you were saying that 
now now the stock is uh, stock you're still is, performing all right, but you're not. Yeah, the getting company the was performing. The company was performing. Stock wasn't performing. It would it got crushed with all what, internet. What did the valuation go down to? A dollar and a half. So the value, maybe two dollars. So the valuation at that point was probably forty million or something. You know, we had. I know oh, we had maybe twenty five million, thirty million is the lowest it got. It's a good thing you didn't Market buy that cap. helicopter. It was uh, yeah, never. We never did anything, <laughs> and I'm convinced that. The fact that I had been in the newspaper business and been through other, you know, through bad times was one of the reasons the company was saved because we never spent money that we didn't have to. We built up a fair amount of cash and we, you know, we kept it. We held on to it to make sure we can get for a rainy day. Um, we never drained cash big anyway, but the, the we had it. And, and in the early days, it's a safety measure for a company. Later on, it becomes an issue. It's like you don't want too much cash. You want to be using it to grow the business. You, you know, the, your, your, your uh, investors don't really want you to be a bank. They want you because they could put their money in a bank. They want you to have money that you're investing and it's making more money. So there, it becomes a burden almost, not, but to make sure that you're doing it. But in those days, it was not. It was you want to survive. So we, um, I called the staff together and said, okay, look, this is now there were like 200 people. So this is the way it's supposed to be now. We're, we're va- undervalued. Company's doing well. We had cash. Mm-hmm. The valuation was only slightly over cash. And I said, so we're, we, people don't get that this business is, you know, doing well because they just said it's an Internet company. And the same people who thought it was great six months ago thought it was terrible now. And that's why it was stupidly high-priced a year ago, and it's stupidly low-priced now. Nobody's paying attention. But we are, and the business is doing fine. And over the next few years, this stock will will go up. So we issued a boatload of options again to everybody and said, this is the new world. And you're not supposed to be a millionaire overnight. You're supposed to be a millionaire soon, you know, if you if the thing works, if, if the company mm-hmm. grows. Uh, let's see what happens. And we were at two or two and a half. And, and for the next five years, we blocked and tackled. We ran a great business, grew it. To like eighty million in revenue, probably five million in profit, and uh, the stock went from three to five to seven to nine to twelve, ten or eleven, when Dow Jones swooped in and said we need to own this thing, and that caused eventually a. You know, I, we we didn't want to put it for sale. We we had fifty million in the bank. We said, you know, things are okay. We don't really have to. And, and the board wanted to know if I thought it was time to sell. And I said, well, what Dow Jones said to me gives me pause, which was. We realize now that we need to be both in the pay business and the free business, so we need another brand. We're either going to have to build one or buy you guys. You're the biggest brand. You're the guys who are showing up on our research as where people are going. Uh, The bad news about that was if they didn't buy us, they were going to compete with us. They finally had figured that out. Whether they'd be good or not, who knows? They'd screwed up everything else. All of them had screwed up their attempts to try and go on the web. But at least I felt my conversation with them, they understood the issues now. Uh, I said, that's going to make our life harder. Mm-hmm. So if we can get a high valuation, and we said in our own minds what that might be, um, we, we, it would be years before I could get my shareholders that kind of money any other way, and we probably should sell the company if that happens. But So the way to find out was we don't want to put it up for sale publicly because we may not sell it. We don't have to choose sell it. We don't need to. And then we don't even want to know that it was discussed if we don't want to sell it. Um, so we got a banker and said, how do we approach this? And he said, look, uh, it was a media banker. He said, I'll t- who are the companies you think might be interested in buying this? And there were like four or five. He said, I'll make discreet, you know, uh, I'll have discreet calls to them to see if they're interested. Tell them we have an interested buyer. We're considering it. We may not go for sale, but. 
and everybody he contacted wanted in. They wanted the company. CBS being obviously knew they were on the board. Mm -hmm. So once we decided, all right, we're going to go through a, a closed process. We're going to pick the companies that we think are there, not throwing it to the public. At the end of it, we may decide we're not selling it to anybody, and nobody will know. Um, and uh, we and, and I turned to CBS and Pearson, and I said, okay, you need to tell, you need to say now, are you a potential buyer or not? If you're a potential buyer, you got to get off the board right now. You got to mm -hmm. you got to be excused from all the meetings from now on. If you're not, then you can stay. Pearson stayed, and CBS left. And so CBS, New York Times, uh, Dow Jones, who got it, um, Gannett, and Yahoo were all in. What was that process like? And meanwhile, you have this still kind of nutty thing hanging over your shoulder of CBS being part of the brand. Uh, it, it, well, at that point, CBS realized they really wanted it. It was too late. I mean, they were in the process. I couldn't do anything about it. Hmm. Everybody was bidding cash, too. So who you are didn't matter. I, you couldn't, I could not sell to anything but the highest bidder because I'd be sued if I, from the shareholders if I didn't. If I sold to somebody I liked and, and I got a good job out of it or something, it would be terrible. So I had to say to everybody, you know, um, I'm not in the deal. So I'm not even talking about if I'm going to work for you or not at the end. We can't even have that discussion at first. Second, you know, we'll just we'll, – we made presentations to each of the companies and make your bids. And we wound up with a bidding war going on. It bidded up to $18 a share. And we had felt that if it went to 14 if it went over 14 we were in the, in the area where we should sell it. But that would take us to you know another few years to get to 14 stock price. Otherwise, several years, and that would be unfair to the investors if they could get it today. So when it went to 18, it was like. So we sold it 528 million dollars. Yeah, so that paper money ended up being worth something. Yeah, it did. And I got almost back to almost back to where I was that first day, <laughs> because there were that many more shares, even though it was you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, and, and now meanwhile, just to back up, so this is. I mean, this is really just all one long journey since their first entrepreneurial yeah, I mean, it was a thing. Yeah, the same little success. pieces of stock. Oh, yeah, it was right. So it, for me, it was you know, it was literally fifteen years. I mean, 1990 was when I started with Market Watch. 2005 is when we sold. When I started with Data Sport, and, and 2005 is when I sold. So, so what was that moment like when the deal closes? You it was know, a 15 really. Years it's a very frightening moment. I had two simultaneous feelings. One was. Oh my God! Somebody's going to write me a life-changing check, and it was all worth it. And the other one was I'm handing over my firstborn to somebody, and what's that going to be like? I mean, I basically had to walk away. They offered me a job and to run it and stuff, but it was not going to be this. I couldn't run it for somebody else. And um, I, I was really like, God, what am I going to do with my life now? And how much money was that deal worth for you? You know, it was it was millions. It was it, it was not quite the tw wasn't the twenty million that I would have gotten that first day, but it was close enough. After taxes, it's a lot less, but you know, it was plenty. It, whatever it was, it was all. I'm telling you what's public. I'm not telling you what's not. Yeah. Plus, you would have to do a lot of calculations to figure out options and what they were really worth. Because I had to pay for the options and stuff like that. But it was, you know, it was not an unreasonable uh, uh, payout for my efforts. You know, it was fifteen years. Of doing it, and and nobody begrudged me the you know what I made. I didn't make like, you know, my, all the people who were there for a while made, did well, and so mm -hmm. it was it was. I have no complaints. Um, so you know, you, you find out when you get money though that the first thing you do is you meet people who have a lot more money. <laughs> so your idea of what's enough changes, <laughs> but 
you know, I have to remind myself every once in a while. It's like, you know what? If I did nothing from now on, I could still live just fine. I couldn't live at the late rate I'm living. I'd have to, you know, cut back or do things if I had no income coming in at all. And I had no jobs in my life where I have like big um, uh, uh, pension plans or stuff like that. I always worked for 401ks and stuff, so I don't have any fixed money coming in. So whatever I make, whatever I have, I have to live off of. And you hate the idea of going into your savings. Uh, it just, it's just—it's a natural reaction. Um, but you know, it's—it's like—I I can stop and say to myself, you know what? I know that I could live from now on. And you know, you have to resist doing things like giving your kids too much money or doing—you know—you—you you, you want to—you have to keep grounded. Our lifestyle really hasn't changed. I mean, I have the same car I had eight years ago. I bought when we IPO'd. And and I have my you know my kids work through school and both graduated college both have jobs, live in different cities and they don't have like you know huge trust funds. They'll probably get money as time goes by, but and we've helped them along the way. But they're probably like every other kid. You know they worry about you know making money to to get what they want, and so and that was really important to us. You know, so it didn't. You know, for people who have, you know, there are a lot of people for whom. You know what I have will just would seem paltry, I think, to them. It's it's all perspective, you know. What you'd live mm -hmm. on. If, if you told me five years ago, could you live on this? I'd say, of course. You give me, I go buy an island or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's you know you think about a lot of things when you get it, and besides paying taxes and how you know I'd like to live a long time. So I'm, you know, how much will that take? How much do I want to leave my children? How much do who knows? So I still, and I'm still motivated to work anyway because to do things, just because I could never sit around and do that. I'm not, if you saw my golf game, you'd know it's not my, it's, it's not something I'm going to do for the rest of my <laughs> life. I'll, I'll play it, but it's not, I'm not going to do it and think my game's going to get any better. Mm. It's fun. But, so it's, it's uh, you know, I, I, I've really welcomed, the one thing that has changed my life is I've had the opportunity. I, when I left MarketWatch, when I sold it, I didn't take time off. CBS came after me and asked me to help them start a digital division, and I did that. And working inside a big corporation was strange after a couple of years, after 15 years of running my own business. Um, but it was there was value to that too, and I got to learn a lot about that, and it's helped me. And and then I left as I planned, and being on a bunch of boards and seeing things or things, and learning all the things I'm learning. It's like being in grad school. I don't have when you're a CEO and you're laser focused on running a business, you don't have time to really spend time learning about other things mm. here. I'm learning about a ton of things in the industry and the world I'm in is changing so fast on all these fronts. It's been a huge plus for me. So I'm, I really love knowing everything I know now and learning things I'm doing. I'm on multiple boards. They do different things, I'm writing a book. Um, I'm doing, what's you know, your book? Uh, books about, uh, I got Harper Collins. I've got a contract actually. And I'm doing a book on, uh, how, that this whole change of the storytelling process and the internet uh, has changed the media industry dramatically. We're in the midst of that, but more importantly, is that 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 tsunami of change is going to hit every company, and how every industry and business is going to be changed by what's happening in our communications world and in the internet world, and and the world of storytelling. Uh, and it's fascinating what's happening to every company. So I'm spending time in industries I didn't spend a lot in, like toys and stuff like that, how those worlds are changing because of how kids interact with stories and all that stuff. But it all st it's my belief it's we're at like a Gutenberg moment. What's happened today is as big as the invention of the printing press then, and it's going to change a lot from education to, you know, to how we buy things mm -hmm. to everything, and that uh, companies can adapt. It's more optimistic than 
than uh, most. And what are your thoughts on, you know, all these lessons you learn doing, you know, what you talked about, like content, storytelling. A lot of people are saying now that's kind of irrelevant. You know, it's you're just tracking your fans. No, I totally you – know, my, my, my whole belief is that um, content's still king. It's even more king now than it ever was because all content's available. And the so people have access to everything. The best content will rise because they'll want it. Um, so I believe that. I believe – Consumer has enormous control now over everything he wants and will get, uh, and that has you have to pay attention to that because you, you can put on a show at ten o'clock at night, but that's not when I'm going to watch it. You mm-hmm. know, so those that world has changed dramatically. I think convergence is changing things. The fact that you can communicate using every form of media on one platform is new. So storytelling and all that is going to change dramatically, and and it should. Um, and I think there are a couple, you know, there are new roles we have to learn to take. In journalism, one of them is curation. The idea where we, you know, we always were curators in that, you know, we get 100 press releases at the paper. We'd pick the two that we'd write stories about. The difference today is everybody gets the 100 press releases. We still mm-hmm. have to help our customers, our readers, decide which ones are worth reading. It's a different process. You know, that we don't own, we don't own the distribution system anymore, we, but we do own what we hopefully own is an intelligence and an, and, and, and an ability to help our customers or the people who work with us uh, uh, to get what they want out of life. So I think there's, you know, I, I don't think, I think just the, you know, the distribution, the change in distribution system is dramatic, but it isn't the end of the world. It, it's in fact enlightening. There's so many more efficient ways to tell a story now. We should be doing it. And there's mm. so, you know, if, if I want to buy something, if I want to buy a Persian rug, I don't have to go to Persia, you know. I, I or or the only store in the, that may sell it in the U.S. It might be in L.A. I can get to them on the internet. I don't have to fly around to find that store. If I want to buy a '67 Mustang with a certain number of miles on it, a certain color, in a certain way, I could probably find it pretty quick now instead of having to make phone calls to 50 cities and do what I used to have to do. Mm-hmm. So the, take advantage of that. You know, let's let's make it should make life a better place. And, and so I'm very optimistic. I think it's a great time. And I think the biggest problem we have is companies trying to de- trying to protect their business models, not their product, not what they do. The toy company that recognizes they're in the business of entertaining kids, the book company or that recognizes that it's really selling ideas, not necessarily books, those are the companies that will do well going ahead. And, and you just need to look at every business in the, in the light of these changing more – changing um, – uh, these developments and figure out where it fits. That sounds like a great book. I want to let you go soon. I just wanted to um, kind of finish up. You know, now that now that you're not running a company, now you're kind of I guess choosing what you spend your time on. You know, what what's your ambition? Do you have? Do you feel like you have a lot of ambition left? You know. That- yeah, I think. I mean, I, the book is important to me. I think my ambition, even in the last few years, has been. I have a soft spot in my heart for journalism. I want to save do what I can to help save journalism. So I'm on the chairman of the board of the Newhouse School Alumni Board. So I'm working on helping them work on their curriculum. I might do some more teaching. But I, but I want to focus on, you know, again, I'll be a heavy media focus. I want to focus on the concept of journalism and, and where it stands in this new world, helping to protect it. Um, that's fun for me. And that's kind of a theme that rides through a lot of what I'm doing. Uh, but just... Being able to share what I've learned has been it's fun. I've always loved teaching. I always lo- I'm proudest of all the people who worked for me and moved on to bigger and better things. That's a huge for me a huge satisfaction. 
So I, I just want to, you know, I can, I, the fact that I can keep doing that, live a slightly more, be more in control of my life than I was before, not having to run a company. There are times when I want to just take something over and do it. Get, you know, take the ball from the five-yard line and get across the, the goal line at the end of the field. Um, nothing yet enough to make me give up the things that I'm doing right now. Maybe something will come along and I'll run it for a while or something. But right now, the book's a big focus. I get to another, will be for another six months. And the boards that I'm on are really good and I'm contributing and I love that. So I, I don't know. I'm just having a good life, you know. No complaints. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing what you learned on the show. Thanks for asking. Good luck. That's all for this edition of Venture Voice. Be sure to check out our website, VentureVoice.com, to find show notes, links to anything mentioned, and to leave a comment. You can also find us on Twitter at, at @VentureVoice, or me personally on Twitter at Gregory, or find our Facebook page, facebook.com slash VentureVoice. I'd also like to thank Eddie Leviton for editing this show. Until next time, this is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.